After a couple of weeks uh, away from this series, though not far from the Gospel of Luke, I invite you to pick up with me again at Luke chapter 6, verse 17. As we come to this uh, paragraph, Jesus' popularity and notoriety uh, as a preacher and as a healer and as an exorcist of demons has been spreading. Uh, People are now traveling from far and wide to hear him, not just uh, a growing number of disciples, I mean, but uh, people from uh, all Judea and Jerusalem, and not only Jews, but when we read of things like Tyre and Sidon from which they were coming, we think of Gentiles as well, all to be healed by him physically, spiritually, to hear him and his message. He's just chosen and named his apostles, the uh, twelve, from among the uh, great number of disciples who followed him, and now they're going to have opportunity to serve what we sometimes call in um, our denomination in the PCA, their ministerial internships. Uh, It's time for them to watch now and to learn and uh, what it means to serve. Eventually, the preaching uh, and healing ministries will fall to them. Uh, But first, they have to be mentored and developed in their gifts. And their internship uh, begins here on the uh, level plane, which is why one commentator cleverly calls this sermon uh, a sermon on the level. You'll immediately recognize some similarities between this and another of Jesus' sermons, his sermon on the mount. Uh, That sometimes happens with most preachers, uh, that what they preach in one sermon sounds a whole lot like what they've preached in another. Uh, In this case, in true prophetic style, he proclaims uh, blessings and curses, or woes. Four blessings mirrored by four woes. Fundamentally, he's saying in the course of pronouncing these blessings and woes, that there are, there are two ways of living. You know, fundamentally, boil it all down, uh, there's one kind of living that brings the blessings of God, and there's another kind of living that brings the curses, inherits the woes and the miseries. But the life of blessing is not the likely way. And not the way that you'd expect, and not the way certainly that the world would anticipate. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to open our hearts to receive uh, surprising things from your law. And, and to receive them indeed, by which we mean that our lives will be conformed to your word. By the power of your spirit at work now and in all of our days, however many or few Uh, may remain to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 6, 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. 
And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. How can you tell that God is blessing you? Many preachers today have an answer for you on that score, especially on television. God is blessing you when your bank account is filling up. God is blessing you when you're driving whatever is great to drive today. It used to be a Cadillac, maybe now it's a, I don't know, a Hummer, I don't know. Blessed are you when you have plenty to eat. Is God blessing you, they ask? Oh no, then then send us your gift and Visa and MasterCard are accepted. And watch as God starts blessing you and blessing you. Name it and claim it. Now there's no doubt when the bank account is full and when you're driving a nice car... And when your table is loaded with good things, that these are the blessings of God. Particularly when they are received by people who know and enjoy them and acknowledge from whom these blessings flow. But Jesus' answer to that first question is a little bit different. How, how can you tell, how do you know you're being blessed? Well, blessed are you when you're poor. And blessed are you when you're hungry. And blessed are you when you're mourning. And blessed are you when you're persecuted and reviled. And so I ask you again, congregation, how blessed are you? How blessed do you want to be? Really? Leads me to my first point before we even get to the actual blessings and curses themselves. First, you're going to have to be ready to think 
just the opposite way you would naturally think if you will enjoy the blessings of God. While the world screams out to you that the real blessings of God must certainly be measured out and enjoyed in terms of yachts and, and mansions and fancy cars and trips around the world or, or around the state and in diamonds and in gold and popularity and power and pleasure and partying, Jesus says it's just the other way around. What Jesus says is totally unexpected, really. You know that the people in the crowds who heard this sermon first must have scratched their heads when he said that the blessed ones are the ones who are poor and hungry and crying and persecuted. And maybe some of them are even tempted to laugh at themselves. Are you kidding? And then he turns right around and he says that the, the things that everybody wants and the things that everybody thinks are uh, things to be had and worth pursuing, money, food, entertainment, popularity, woe to those. One commentary sums it up wonderfully this way. Jesus is teaching his disciples and his apostles to prize what the world calls pitiable and to suspect what the world thinks desirable. When you see pictures of Christians in Sudan with their hands cut off at the wrist because they're Christians, deprive. And when you see the pictures of people who've just won the lottery, Pity. The Christian Christ-centered perspective on life is, is sort of like, <clears throat> like looking at a negative. Now for you children who don't know what film is, because all you've had is a digital camera, film is what used to be in those cameras that your, your parents used that when developed, all the light things are dark and all the dark things are light. It's, it's how Christians have to learn to look at the world and see it that way. It's the opposite of the way we see it in the flesh. The way we naturally see the colors. Second, note carefully that these things are blessed. Poverty and hunger and weeping and persecution and so on. Uh, the, the, rather, they're not blessed for their own sake, okay, in themselves. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's, pre he's speaking, he's preaching to those who follow him, whose lives are about serving him. Poverty alone is not blessed for its own sake. Poverty for the sake of serving Christ is what's blessed. You know, doing without for the sake of advancing God's kingdom, that's the poverty that is blessed. Suffering persecution because you're a troublemaker is not a blessed thing. It's only natural. It's what you should expect if you are a troublemaker. Suffering persecution for Christ's sake, that's blessed. J.C. Ryle put very well, 
what I'm struggling to say when he wrote this. He said, we must not for a moment suppose that the mere fact of being poor and hungry and sorrowful and hated by man will entitle anyone to lay claim to an interest in Christ's blessing. The poverty here spoken of is a poverty accompanied by grace. The want is a want entailed by faithful adherence to Jesus. The afflictions are the afflictions of the gospel. The persecution is persecution for the Son of Man's sake. Third, before we get into the blessings and and woes, I say themselves, let's remember that our lives are measured not only against what is experienced in this life, but against eternity. When the Bible speaks of blessedness, what it means is the highest, most fulfilled, most wonderful blessings and happiness in the enjoyment of God's favor. One definition I've read of blessedness says that blessedness is the quality or character of life lived as the Creator intended without the curse and its effects. Well, if that's true, then the ultimate blessedness, of course, is to be found not in this life, but in the life to come. The largest part of life, uh, the longest part of life, the life that makes this life but a breath by comparison, even less than that, the life we will enjoy forever and ever after the consummation of all things, when sin is no more, when we know fully what it means to be blessed and to be blessed indeed. So when Jesus talks of satisfaction and talks of laughter and, and being full and, and of reward, he's obviously talking about things yet to come. Indeed, he says it flat out in verse 22 to the persecuted. And we heard Mr. Shields pray the very same thing this morning. Uh, Your reward is great in heaven. But that's not to say... Now, be careful here. It's not to say that there's no blessedness to be enjoyed in this life as well. Of course, he gives us satisfaction today and laughter and reward in this life too. The disciples experienced during their own lives the fulfillment of that promise that the Lord made to them, that, that for their service to him, they would enjoy friends and family, brothers and sisters multiplied hundredfold. And they did. And there's another sense in which they are still waiting for the fulfillment of these things. You know, they, they were promised as well a hundredfold in lands that they had given up, but none of them died uh, real estate uh, moguls. Uh, there are promises yet to be fulfilled as well. So the blessedness God promises us now is now, uh, but even more it is yet to come. You have to consider the bigger picture when you, when you weigh this life. You can't weigh your struggles in this life against your few short years in this life. You have to weigh them against the grand picture, against eternity, against forever and the blessedness that will accompany it. If you will weigh those blessings aright against the afflictions that will disappear like a dream compared with that grand reality. 
Last week, our family watched a movie that consisted almost entirely of a dream. In fact, it was a dream within a dream within a dream. That the whole, almost the whole movie was was in lived in these three layers of dreams. It was captivating because it depicted so many things that we experience in dreams. Things like the feeling of free falling and and of weightlessness, of shifting scenes, and so on. And after the movie finished with a scene that deliberately left you wondering whether the characters had really made it back from the dream to reality or, or were still locked in the dream, I looked across the room at Debbie and for just a moment wondered, uh, am I dreaming? And she looked across the room and thought to herself, I'm still in the nightmare. <laughs> I, I, I think it, it's just the opposite. Uh, when first we open our eyes in the restored heavens and earth. It will be for us as if it were for the first time that we're in reality. That this is real. Really real. The sufferings of this life, they will be the dream They'll be but foggy memories at best compared to the vivid colors and brightness and glory and unmitigated blessedness of eternal reality. Then we will know and we'll say to ourselves and we'll turn and say to each other that day, now this, this is the blessedness Jesus told us about. Not everyone will experience that. That's Jesus' point. There are some who will will never know that reality. Who would be glad for all the rest of eternity if they could just return to the dream. If they could return to this life from the everlasting nightmare that waits in store for those who do not love him. And who are unwilling for his sake to be poor and to be hungry and to mourn and to be persecuted in this life for his sake. Let's spend the rest of the time this morning just uh, considering what, what that means. Four blessings, four woes. They mirror each other perfectly, so we'll take them in pairs. First... Verse 21, uh, 20, rather, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, what does Luke mean by poor here? Many people want immediately to turn to the Sermon on the Mount, right? And understand Luke, Luke's record here of Jesus' sermon on the plain against Jesus' sermon in Matthew on the mount, and read here, poor in spirit. But that's not what Luke records here. He means literally, and Luke has a heart for these people, he means poor. You who are poor, literally, don't have much. You're living without. Your pockets are empty. Jesus came preaching good news to the poor. He's looking at his disciples now, of course, at his followers. Remember, he made the point that the, this, this, these things apply to Christians, the blessings 
do, that is, many of whom had been following him, and precisely because they were following him, had nothing. They surrendered everything to follow him. They had nothing but the clothes on their backs. But he wanted them to understand this, that though they had nothing, in fact, they had everything. They didn't have two shekels to rub together in their pockets, but they had the kingdom of God. It was theirs. In their financial hardships, then and now, especially when those hardships have one way or in another having to do with the, the service that you're rendering to Christ, when one has given up all to follow him, or even tithing when paying the bills is a challenge. Jesus wants you to remember this. Count your possessions by something more than the balance in your checkbook or the cash in your pocket. In fact, he wants you to see how counting your wealth in dollars and cents, why that really is to be impoverished. Even if those dollars number in the millions. Those who find and count their riches in greenbacks are under a curse. Woe to them, Jesus says. They have their consolation now because it will be, no matter how much it is, no consolation to them when they're six feet under. What kind of consolation will even billions of dollars be in the bank to an unbeliever in hell? The memory of it will, will actually only bitterly mock him. There's a reason, as it's said, you never see a funeral hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. Because you can't take it with you. All the riches of this life, whether you counted them in the tens or hundreds or thousands or millions, are no consolation at all. But for those who invest in heaven's wealth, you who set your investments in heaven, even if it means doing without yourselves today, what dividends you're going to reap You've never made an investment ever like the investment you make when you invest in heaven. And you will never see dividends ever like you will see and possess for the investments you make in heaven. Think about that, dear flock, when you're setting up your family budget. When you're weighing one job against another job, one that will pay you little but keep you obedient to God's commands versus one that may make you rich in earthly terms, but draw you away from the Lord. Weigh those against the bigger scale of heaven. Think about when you're deciding whether or not you really need to replace that car or could use those funds 
and reasonably support missionaries or when you're looking at moving into the, the big house and making yourself all the more comfortable lining your own nest for this short time on earth or investing in an eternal mansion to come. Which one outweighs the other, really? One comforts for a time, it's true. It's very comfortable to surround ourselves with nice, expensive things in this life. I don't deny it. But the other, the other is eternal. You'll never lose it. Second, verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. But verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. That follows from the first. The poor often also are hungry for the same reason. But there's a spiritual sense of hunger too, hunger for God. People who train their taste for the things of God, for his word, for his worship, for prayer, whose hunger, therefore, is never fully satisfied because he always craves more, more of God, because there's always more of him to have. Those who hunger that way will be satisfied. Remember the psalmist, Oh God, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We were actually made for that kind of hunger because we're made for God and for fellowship with Him and only He can satisfy. Now, snicker bars, uh, they do deliver on their promise. You who've, who've enjoyed a snicker bar like, like I have, they really do satisfy uh, for a time, for a short time. But then within minutes, you've, you're hungry for more. When once you've devoured the love that is at the heart of the universe, you will be satisfied. You'll be filled at that great banquet to come like you have never been satisfied before. Not at the most lavish banquet on the earth. But if you're full now, that is to say you're satisfied with the things of earth. You're, you've come as far as you need to spiritually. You've had enough of God and enough of his word. You really don't need um, any more. Um, woe to you. You're in danger. You're in danger of never knowing what it means to soar on the heights of heaven. You've heard the story maybe of the duck who was flying across Europe in the springtime, along the way, the ducks settled in a barnyard where uh, the tame ducks were fed corn every day. He intended to stay only for an hour, but the food was so good that he decided to stay for a day. And a day became a week, and a week became a month, and finally the whole summer. Next autumn, he heard the flock of wild ducks pass overhead, and when he Turned at their call, he flapped his wings and rose to join them, but by that time he was so fat that um, no matter how much he struggled, he failed to get any higher than the roof 
of the barn. So he dropped, dropped back down to the ground and settled in for the winter. And the next time the duck heard the call of the wild, he lifted his head excitedly, but he couldn't even get off the ground. And eventually, he was so satisfied with his life in the barnyard that he didn't even notice the call of the wild anymore. Dear flock, don't stop in the barnyard. Don't lose your hunger for the skies by gorging yourself on the things at Walmart. Don't lose your taste for the protein of the Bible and of prayer by filling your stomach with the empty carbohydrates of the television screen and video games. Stay hungry. Stay hungry for the things of God and you will be filled with a filling Well, I can't even describe it. Lose your appetite for the things of God by satiating it with what the world has to offer. And woe to you, you'll be forever empty. Third, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 23. On the other hand, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. There is a seriousness to the Christian life, a grief over my sin, over your sin, over the sin of the world, grief that God has over sin and in which we join him, grief over the devastation that sin has wrought on the face of the earth that is fitting for a Christian. That's right for a Christian. It's okay to laugh. Of course it's okay to laugh. But to make light of everything, you know, <laughs> chuckle off everything. Chuckle off sermons like this. Chuckle off the things of the Lord. Never stop joking. Never stop to think soberly and carefully about your life. Never to shed a tear for the sake of the church, though you sing so often in the sanctuary that you will do just that. Never to grieve over the lost Never a wet pillow in cries from the heart to God to send his gospel out. Never a, a plea for the unborn that are being slain by the millions a year in the bloodbath in this nation in which we live. Never to grieve over civil leaders slaying their own people today in places like Syria and Libya that's not a genuine Christian life weep Christians weep weep before the Lord today and you will enjoy an eternity of laughter laugh now Refuse to take Christ and his call seriously today. Joke him off in this life. And you'll join that crowd that for the weeping and gnashing of their teeth will never again find it one bit amusing to sing along with Billy Joel on the radio that they'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints.
forth, verse 22, <coughs> blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But, verse 26, woe to you when people speak well of you, when all people speak well of you, he says. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. May you be so blessed, Christian. May you be so blessed as to have someone who hates your guts. May you be so blessed to be reviled because you love Christ. May you be so blessed that you're passed over for a promotion at your workplace because you're so obviously a devoted observer of the law of God. May you be so blessed, so fortunate as to be excluded from a group of former friends even, because you bear on you the scent of life to those who are being saved but the scent of death. The, the scent, the stench of death to those who have not Christ and will not have him. May you even be accused of evil. May you be that blessed because of your love for Jesus. Why? How strange that your pastor should, should desire such things, such blessings for you. But I tell you what a day of rejoicing it will be. You'll be able to come home and, and tell your family about that because you have a great, great reward in heaven. The apostles suffered horrible persecution, torture, death, execution for the sake of the gospel. Their names are even now engraved in heaven. The prophets who were killed for speaking the truth. Yes, think of Stephen. They're speaking, delivering his, his, his message, even as they were stoning him to death. What kind of reward in heaven awaits that sort of suffering for Christ? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to whose place of death at the hands of the Nazis, our own Dr. Pete, recently went. I say Bonhoeffer was right to call suffering the badge of true discipleship. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, he said. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy. It is a token of his grace. Come now, Mr. Bonhoeffer. A joy? Really? Yes. And Jesus will go even further. Leap for joy that day that you suffer for me, because great is your reward to come. In other words, measure this present dream by the vivid reality of heaven. 
Remember the apostles rejoicing as they left the presence of the council in the book of Acts, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Which brings me finally to ask this, Christian, what are you suffering for Christ? What have you sacrificed? What have you done without, withheld from yourself for the sake of the gospel? How hungry are you really for the things of God? How seriously do you take even what you've heard this very morning from Jesus' own lips? I tell you, my brothers and sisters, and the answers that that you give to those questions, you may know, truly know, just how much you will be satisfied, how long and how loudly you will laugh, how great will be your reward in heaven, and whether the kingdom of God really is yours or not. Amen.